Let's pray together before we look into the scriptures this morning. Lord, it is my prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. These things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Imagine what it would be like if you were to have the privilege of kneeling beside the Lord Jesus Christ and you could actually hear him praying. When I was growing up, my uh, grandmother who lived in Virginia, uh, southeastern Virginia, she would come up and visit after my grandfather died. She would travel alone and she would stay in the bedroom beside mine. And uh, that was my brother's old bedroom. And you could hear a fly crawling on that wall. It was such a thin uh, wall, nothing in between it really, uh, that would break the sound. And so I could hear her at night praying before she went to sleep. One of my favorite memories of my grandmother, who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ all of her life, but did so at the latter part of her life. But imagine if you could just listen in, not just to a relative, not just to a a person that you know, but imagine if you could listen in to the Son of God as He made known His requests, as He offered up His petitions to His Father in heaven. What a privilege that would be. The amazing thing is that the 11 disciples, excluding Judas, of course, from the 12, but the 11 disciples were granted that unspeakable privilege when after the Passover meal, as you recall, they made their way out to the garden, to the... uh, the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus spoke at length about important changes and critical issues that they needed to be prepared to face in view of the fact that Jesus was about to be put to death on a cross, and then he was about to be raised from the dead. And so Jesus prayed for these disciples in their hearing. That's fascinating. Of course, many of them, it was late at night, many of them slept through that. But he interceded for them, not only the eleven, but he interceded in general for all of the disciples who would ever follow him going forward. And we find that prayer found in John 17. If you have your Bible, you might want to find your way to John chapter 17 in the Gospel of John, where that prayer is recorded. It's the most extensive example of the direct verbalized communication between two members of the Godhead in all the Bible. You don't find anything like this. In reading these verses, we gain so many insights into the concerns that Jesus had on his heart and mind for his disciples. And you have to ask yourself, at such a moment like this, maybe the Lord was beginning to wonder, would they be able to successfully carry out this challenging mission that he's going to give them to take the gospel to all the nations of the world and make disciples of them? Would his followers teach all of these people, all the nations, to observe everything that Jesus had commanded them? Or would they somehow falter against the intimidation of persecution and various forms of opposition and intimidation uh, to be silent? Would they, over time, adopt worldly values, worldly practices, worldly standards? 
you got to wonder, what would Jesus ask for? If he, knowing he was going to leave, what is he most concerned about? What would he ask for? Some of us, when we think of our children being launched and they're going to go off and uh, face life on their own, we think of, well, I'd pray that they remain healthy, pray that they find a good job, pray that they, we sort of tend to think in these categories. But what is Jesus going to pray for? Is he praying they'll have a comfortable life? Is he praying that they'll be, quote unquote, um, happy, fulfilled, live a nice a uh, uh, comfortable life. It's fascinating to look into, listen in as he prays here. I'd like us to look now at this passage here in John 17. I'd like to read and begin reading in verse 13, which is really not fair. We should read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to jump in there. We'll talk more about what came before and after. Again, we're picking up a prayer that Jesus is offering to his Father in heaven. He says this, verse 13 of John 17. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that is these eleven disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Again, I'm just arbitrarily sort of uh, concluding my reading, but we could go on and on. And the reason I do so is because I want us to focus this morning on what is it that Jesus is asking for his disciples. And I'll just point out a couple of things, just generally speaking, as a, as a as an observation about a common theme in this passage. If you back up to, chapter, to verse 11, I only think I read that, but one of the things that Jesus says repeatedly at least three times in this passage, beginning in verse 11, he asks his father, um, I come to you, Holy Father, keep them, keep these disciples in your name. He's asking God the Father to keep them. Verse 12, we read, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I guarded them. Not one of them perished except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says, I have been keeping them. Now I'm asking you to keep them. And then we read in verse 15, a similar thought. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. It's clear that Jesus understands that these disciples are facing an opponent, Satan and all of the forces of evil that he wields uh, in this world. And let's think about now, for example, the context of this particular prayer and what Jesus is saying. If we want to understand this petition that he's making here, we need to understand the concerns that he's, again, weighing, and that is the concern about Satan, of course. He is about to... Uh, no longer have an opportunity to shepherd them in person like he had. 
And so, bearing witness to the saving grace of Jesus Christ in a hostile world is going to bring these disciples into, inevitably, opposition, a pushback. They're going to run into, in a sense, verse 14, as Jesus himself knows. People are going to hate them. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate his disciples as well. So Jesus is praying that they would not live worldly lives. His concern is that the pressure to turn back from following Jesus, the pressure to, to not follow in unique and ways that stand apart from the world because they're not going to conform to worldly ways, he's concerned that they are going to conform. And so Jesus has a heart's concern that the Father would keep them, and by keeping them, he means his desire that they live a holy life. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now here we got another one of these fancy uh, spiritual words, sanctify. We all hear it many times, but what does it mean? Well, let me just tell you the root of the word from which we get the word in the original language has the basic meaning of to be distinct, to be transcendent, or to be uh, something, someone that has characteristics of otherness. In other words, to be set apart. And so the same word is found in verse 11, you'll notice, when Jesus actually spoke to his father and addressed him, he spoke to him as holy father, the one who is set apart, the one who's totally unique. God is set apart. He's different from all of his creation. And when the scripture uses this adjective holy, it does so to modify people or modify things. It's oftentimes saying these people or these objects, like for example in Leviticus with the tabernacle, they've been set apart for God. They are, they are, are to be consecrated for the purposes of God alone. That's what it means to be holy. So a holy person will do what God wants, and a holy person will hate what God hates. Peter picked up on this thought about the holiness of God and then the holiness that we're called to be as followers of Jesus. In his first epistle, chapter 1, he says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It doesn't just apply to the Old Testament saints, it applies to those of us who follow Jesus now. So when Jesus prayed for his disciples to be sanctified, he made it clear that the church, to function in his absence, that his followers must be set apart to God. They must be set apart to God himself. Same term, sanctify, is used to refer to Jesus in verse 19. He says, I'm going to be set apart. What does that mean? For their sakes, I sanctify myself. It means that Jesus says, I'm going to set myself apart for the Father and his purposes to accomplish his bidding exactly as he would have me to do it, which means what? He would lay down his life on the cross. He would be raised again from the dead. He would therefore fulfill the will of his Father. And so we as followers of Christ are to be set apart from the world. We are to be exclusively reserved for God's service. Which is another way of saying we are to be a people who think and live in conformity with God's truth. 
We're to think and live in conformity with God's truth. There's no way a disciple will ever be sanctified, will never be set apart for the Lord's use, apart from being conformed to the revelation that God has given us in the written Word of God. Knowing his earthly ministry is about to end, Jesus then, as he's praying, he's thinking about these things, and he, he says that he wants God the Father to set them apart. How? Using the Word of God as the means by which they would then what? Know the will of God, desire the will of God, understand what God, who God is, what He's done for them. And so therefore, He has in a sense, verse 6, He alludes to the fact that they have kept your word, which means they have understood and, and taken to heart the things you revealed to them in the Old Testament. And He also in this text, and also in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, he refers to the fact that the Lord gave him the word, the Lord Jesus revealed further word to them, and then eventually the New Testament was given by the apostles and those associated with them under the leading of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So what do we know then? It's absolutely critical then that the church be holy in an unholy world. And while the church, we the church remain in the world, it's not, we are not to be of the world, but we are to be, remain set apart for Christ. Now, for this to take place, clearly Jesus is understanding that the Word of God must be closely studied, it must be closely followed. There are many things that we do as Christians that are helpful, noble, and uh, serve good purposes. Sometimes we'll go to a conference, sometimes we'll have uh, fellowship meals, sometimes we'll have times of singing and, and celebration and praise and worship. Those are all fine, they're all very good. But those things alone will never produce true holiness. The Word of God is essential if we're to be set apart. The Word of God is essential if we're to be living in conformity with the truth of God. And the Word of God is the only adequate rule of faith and practice. Now that's my key sentence right there. The Word of God is the only adequate rule of faith and practice. And that's why we said the first point of your outline there, that's why we see the Word of God is necessary, the necessity of God's Word in sanctification. There's only one thing that's adequate to do all this. It is the Word of God. No wonder Jesus made it something that He prayed the Father would work through the Word, into His disciples, so that they might be holy and set apart. That was the context of the first century. I want us to think now, fast forward. Jesus is gone, disciples have gone out, ministry continues on, and so century after century, uh, people are seeking to follow Jesus. But the visible, established church, after a while, did not follow the pattern of abiding carefully and exclusively to the Word of God. In the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church ended up dividing over this particular issue. The Reformers, who began to notice some serious concerns regarding what was being taught by the church at that time and what was being affirmed and, and uh, required of those who were under the authority of the church, they began to express their concerns over this issue. Why? Because they were now digging into the Scriptures and realizing that the Scriptures were the main primary 
requirement of those who were to be sanctified, and as they read them, they studied it in the original languages. There's a guy named Erasmus. You say, well, who was he? Erasmus sounds like a strange name, but he compiled, put together, carefully studied a Greek version of the New Testament. He studied all the manuscripts that they had uh, had on hand at the time. He compares them. He comes up with a, a, an understanding of the accurate understanding of the original languages. And that was then published. And so people who could read and understand the Greek now began to understand that's what was intended here as opposed to the Latin translation that was given by the church at that time. And many of the reformers began to be so excited in what they read, they wanted to be sure it got translated into the language of the people that they were living among so that they could read the scriptures for themselves. What a vast difference they noticed between the scriptures and what they've been translated from the original Greek to what the church had been teaching for years and years. It's the difference between watching the news, and maybe some of us are watching too much news nowadays. I must be guilty of that a little bit myself. There's only so much of it you can take. But anyway, imagine the contrast between C-SPAN broadcasting what goes on in Congress nonstop. Everything that goes on. Long, long speeches, some sort of vote that takes 15 minutes to tally, all the different things that go on in the House of Representatives, let's say. You could watch C-SPAN get the full story and accurately what happened, or you could watch a summary of a news report who is going to pick and choose selective statements selective comments, and try to summarize what happened, but that may not be accurately describing the full effect or full event of what took place. That's the difference between C-SPAN, unfiltered, this is what happened, everything from, from beginning to end, and this is a summary I'm choosing to tell you what I think you need to know. That's the difference between reading the Scripture in the original language and putting it in the language of the people so they could read it, versus the church telling people, this is what you need to know. So after a while, a growing number of people, like the Reformers, understood that no person or no religious institution has greater authority than the Word of God. It's the Scriptures only that are necessary for sanctification. And so the time was in 1545. The church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, calls together a Council of Trent. And this council comes together, they're studying various issues and responding to the beginning of all of these alarm bells that the reformers are beginning to sound. Something is major wrong here. The church has moved in directions and affirming things that are no longer in the scriptures alone. And so the church gathers all of their leaders together and they pass a very strong statement that condemns so many of the teachings of the reformers and affirm that truth of, the, of God is contained in the written words of the Bible, that's true, we agree with that, and unwritten traditions. Council of Trent said that unwritten traditions, also that have been passed down, unbroken, succession of the church, that too is where God, has, his truth is contained. And so the church of Rome adhered to the fact that tradition, that which they have understood and began to un, and passed down from years and years, even though it contradicts the Bible. So Robert Godfrey points out this vast difference between the two, says this, the Bible says every person has sinned with the exception of 
one person, Jesus Christ. Right? Romans 3.23. But according to the church in Rome, tradition says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was sinless. The Bible says Christ's sacrifice once for all. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. Tradition says that the priest sacrifices Christ on the altar at the Mass in an ongoing way every time they have Mass. The Bible says that all Christians are saints. Ephesians chapter 1. It's another way of saying what? Christians are set apart ones. They are saints. And in 1 Peter 2, the, the Bible says that we are also a royal priesthood. We are priests. We are people who bring, we bring our own sacrifices of praise to God himself. But tradition says that the saints and priests are special, exclusive groups within the Christian community. They're only for a select subgroup of people. The Bible says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Where is that found? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Tradition says that Mary is a co-mediator with Christ. And so the Roman church refused to back down from its need to correct some of its teaching that they added and distorted, and they refused to do so today, to affirm the absolute sufficiency of the Scriptures alone for the sanctification of Christ's followers. And Rome continues to insist that the church alone must properly interpret the scriptures the church is the one that must tell you what it means the pope's writings when done so ex cathedra from the throne as it were when his teaching authority they claim that that is infallible and it is unchangeable so you could summarize the position of the roman catholic church instead of saying what the reformer said it is sola scriptura the latin phrase for scriptures alone you could say that the latin the Catholic Church is insisting that it would be sola ecclesia, the church alone. Rather than affirming the adequacy of the Bible alone to learn God's thoughts and to live in conformity with His will, Catholics insist on adding supplemental truths to fur and further revelations, relying on the wisdom of men. And sadly, those who follow their teaching are oftentimes led not toward holiness, but toward error, toward confusion, toward uncertainty, and false assurance. No wonder there was a great Reformation that was almost 500 years ago. Now let's bring it up to where we are today. What's the context of the 21st century? Well, again, I have a deep concern about the amount of biblical illiteracy in our day. Many people are not growing up. They don't know even what anything about the Bible at all. And so therefore, people are vulnerable to, rather than knowing the Word, they oftentimes are going with their instincts. They go with their own subjective impression. They go with their own tuition. They try to wrestle through things and what makes sense to them rather than what the Word of God says. And the church of today is seeing a widespread increase and people who claim to offer prophecies, people who claim to, to know what God's will is. And so there are many people who will come by and they'll say, oh, I have a word from the Lord. And they speak as if they have authoritative revelation. 
as if God is still speaking with authoritative revelation continually on and on, adding to the scriptures. And now there are widespread movements promoting this, this idea of a second blessing that can somehow be a, a significant component to true sanctification and true holiness rather than focusing on the power of the Holy Spirit working through the scriptures. And this secret, they claim, is some kind of subsequent experience. They claim some secret knowledge. and Therefore, they've put themselves into a unique category of Christian experience. But even more so troubling, it seems to me, are the people, or the popularity of books being written, cranked out and being bought in great numbers, millions and millions of them, very profitable for the various publishers who have put them out in which they claim to have had certain experiences, and therefore from these experiences claim, since this is my experience, therefore you can believe it's true. And what we're talking about, of course, is the widespread movement that one blogger called heaven tourism. People who supposedly die go to heaven and then come back, and then they write a book about it. It is a huge publishing endeavor. There are many books that have been published. For example, 90 Minutes in Heaven. There's 23 Minutes in Hell. These are two different books. Heaven is for real. Little Boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. And then there's uh, a number of others that have been written, include, including, and I think I told you this not too long ago, um, a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It was being sold, unfortunately, in many of the Lifeway uh, uh, bookstores, which is Southern Baptist, which is a shame, written by Kevin Malarkey. And uh, he has recently, he was involved in a, ca a car accident. Uh, he was critically injured. He was in a coma for a long period of time. And then he claimed to have seen all these things in heaven. They were recorded, published, whatever. He has more recently come out with a statement. And I'm going to read you this statement. And the statement he says is this. An open letter to Lifeway, that is this pub, the, the book, bookstores, and all other sellers and buyers and marketers of this heaven tourism by the boy who did not come back from heaven, <laughs> he says, please forgive the brevity, and because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. He's in a wheelchair, and he's very limited in what he's able to do. He's still uh, uh, paralyzed in his body. He says, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would give me attention. Certainly did, didn't it? And when I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies, and they continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven. May you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. Now he's expressing the truth, the sad truth is he's saying it was all made up. It was all made up. But the sad truth is that many of us 
don't believe things unless we have someone else affirm them through their experience. And as some have uh, pointed out to us, I thought very in a very helpful way, and that is that what did Jesus say? He said, blessed are those who believe and did not see. Because we don't need to see heaven, we believe whatever the scriptures say about it. A second book I want to point out real quickly here regarding our vulnerabilities in the day in which we live is a book that's, again, selling millions and millions of copies. Now it's being marketed in all different forms to young people, special editions of this, that, whatever. A book by Sarah Young called Jesus Calling. Jesus Calling. And in this book, uh, Sarah Young claims to have wanted, she, she just sat down, tried to be still, and she's now thinking, what God, what would you have me say? And she's waiting for messages from God to come to her, and she writes those messages down. And she writes them in devotional uh, reflections, and she writes them down in the first person as if God is speaking through her and through her writings in devotional thoughts. She is claiming, in a sense, to be speaking for God. And so she claims to hear from Jesus, and then she'll bring that message to her readers. And in many ways, she says her claim is that she is communicating divine revelation. Much of what she says sounds familiar to those of us who've read the Bible, but the danger is that she's saying things as if she is herself God. And the other implication is, is that by making these proclamations, saying that she's speaking on behalf of God, is she is essentially affirming that the Bible is insufficient. We need something more. She says that she wants to have a deep desire to hear from God outside the Bible. So she says in her introduction, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more, she says. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. You see the danger with that? A person that's wanting to hear God speak to them, and then they wait, hear whatever the subjective thought is or, or idea, and then just write it down. And sadly enough, her message this, that she chooses and says and claims that this is what God is telling me, if you add it all up together, does it really reflect everything the Bible is saying to us? Or is it just particular themes that seem to be often repeated? One particular uh, theologian read through her writings, Michael Horton, he says this, in terms of content, the message that she writes is reducible to one point. This is basically what she keeps writing. Trust me more in daily dependence and you'll enjoy my presence. He summarizes basically what the gist of what she writes. But he says this, he says, the first mention of Christ even dying for our sins appears all the way into the second month of devotionals, the end of that month. And then he says, the next reference to Christ's death appears in August 9th. Even the December readings focus on the general presence of Jesus in our hearts and daily lives without anchoring it to Jesus' person and work in history. What's the point? You get the point. There's a danger in substituting someone else's claims, someone else's experience, someone else's messages that they receive from God. And sadly enough, in further editions of her book, they have made revisions. They've now changed the things that she originally had written, and they've modified some of those devotionals to say different things. Here's my point. God's Word is sufficient to help God's people become holy 
and it is God's, God's words is sufficient alone. I want us to look now at that point, point number two. The sufficiency of God's word in sanctification. Jesus made the request, Lord, would you sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. And he knew that the sufficient, adequate provision to enable God's people to truly live a holy life in this world is to know the word of God. He did not say, be sure to follow carefully every word of your pastor. Be sure to follow, and so you'll be holy, the collective word of elders or the decisions and deliberations of councils that have come through church history, or popes, or radio teachers, or modern-day prophets, or angels, or imams, or uh, psychics, or people who are experts in psychology, or people who have some sort of amazing personal experience, or even pollsters who will go around and find out what everybody's thinking and say, well, that's what you really ought to be adopting, because that seems to be the direction of where things are going today. None of these things are to take precedence over the unchanging, authoritative, absolute truth of the written Word of God. And that's why we can say again, it is the Word of God alone that is sufficient for sanctification. Look at that little statement that came out a hundred years later after the Council of Trent, 1648, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in your notes, they try to summarize the sufficiency of Scripture alone with these words. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced by Scripture, under which, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So having affirmed all these things, so what? How should we then live? What's the point of this? Number one, I would just like to again say, let me encourage you to treasure the Word of God. Don't just casually read it. Don't just occasionally read it. But I urge you to treasure it, to highly esteem it, to seek it out and read it again and again and again continually. Turn with me to Acts 17.11. You thought I was going to have a week without Acts, didn't you? We're going to go back to Acts 17, just real quickly. One verse, verse 11. Acts 17.11. These folks are commended in a unique way, because there's really no one else that's commended in this exact same way as to what they responded to. Paul and all of his teaching, he shows up in town, he claims to be a spokesman from God, and he, and he was, and he was telling them all of what they needed to do and what they needed to believe and what they needed to let go of and stop doing. And look what they said, verse 11. Now these, were mo these folks from, from Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they, received, they, they refused the message of Paul and kicked him out of town. Verse 11, for they received the word, these Bereans, with great eagerness not just with oh okay that's interesting not just with curiosity but great eagerness as if they couldn't get enough of it i've got to have more and what did they do examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so my friend may i say to you as i say to myself 
the thought of becoming a person who's a holy, set-apart follower of Jesus Christ in this secular world in which we live will only take place if we are daily searching the Scriptures and asking God to keep showing us His will, showing us His glory, showing us His provisions in Christ, showing us what, who we are in Christ, showing us the glories of the Gospel. Those are the things we need to continually have a steady diet of. And may I just say to you, in terms of challenge, maybe for some of us, we have gotten out of the habit of reading our Bibles. And someone has said, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. So may I suggest, if there's something in your life you need to repent of, something you need to confess to God, confess it, and then get in the book and make it your sustenance, your nutritious way of remaining strong. And by that I would suggest, don't let a day go by that you have fed yourself physical food if you haven't fed yourself spiritual food. I'm not going to say the absolute rule you have to read the scriptures in the morning before you have any food at all, because some of us don't function well until we get some kind of fuel into the system. But I would suggest don't complete your final meal or snack in the day unless you have also taken time to feed your soul with the Word of God. Why? Because we live in a world that is pressure, pressure on us to conform to a secularistic, naturalistic world system that is using man's wisdom and saying, Take God out of every situation in life and let's just deal with things on what makes sense to the greatest number of us. Rather than being led by intuition, we are to be what? Set apart unto God. Let's be guided by the clear teaching of the Scriptures. Let us be a people who do not try any attempts to take truth of God and somehow combine it with that which is not true because what? That doesn't work. You combine something with error, it becomes what? It's no longer truth. It's like trying to combine marble, like, you know, the stone marble, like a rock, and combine it with silly putty. The two can't be combined. They're two separate things. The truth does not need additives. It does not need supplemental explanations. It does not need additional information. We need to treasure the Word of God as given to us because that will equip us to be people of God who are able to do good things for God until he returns. And that's why Jude wrote, we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. How can we do that? Apart from knowing, living, and treasuring the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you, we want to First of all, say that we thank you that your word points us to Christ. There's no way we'll ever be holy, Lord, until we come to the fact, face the fact that all of us are unholy. We are set apart to ourselves. We are people who are focused on self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-desires. We are a people who are committed to doing what we want to do. And we all have failed, Lord, to follow you and to glorify you by following your ways. We have rebelled against you as our King and our Creator. And Father, we thank you that you have not removed any hope for us, but you have given us hope in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who gave himself for us that we might be rescued 
that we might be transformed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be dearly loved as a member of your family, and that we might be a people who are set apart, belonging completely and only for you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who is having a difficult time truly believing this is the message of your word, I pray, Lord, you would use your word today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you shall be saved. May that be applied to any heart here today, Lord, who has never been set apart for you. But this is the day that that will happen. And Lord, for those of us who have been set apart, we have known the glories of salvation. We pray that you might continue to whet our appetite. Make us, Lord, people who continually long to know your word and to see you in the pages of your word and to to be refreshed by the, the reality of the gospel in Jesus Christ, which is all written through and through the pages of your word. Lord, point us to the glories of who you are and enrich our souls and fill our minds and transform our desires, Lord, through your word, that we might be a holy people who live godly lives for you until Christ comes. We pray in your name. Amen.